Well, good morning. We turn your Bible to John chapter 7 as we continue in our time of worship. Thank you again, Adam and orchestra, choir, for leading us faithfully in worship, preparing us for worship through the preaching of the word. We're going to be looking at verses 37 to 39 this morning. Verse 37, John writes, on the last day of the feast, the great day. So this is likely Sunday, the eighth day. Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promises of this passage. We thank you for the invitation of this passage. We thank you for the Christ of this passage. May we see him today by the spirit that is promised. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dustin Willis, in his book, Life in Community, tells the story of going on a short-term mission trip uh, to Cambodia. He got there, and it was over 100 degrees, and the first thing he was told was, don't drink the tap water. Make sure that you drink bottled water. And so across the street from the inn where he stayed, uh, there was a little convenience store. So he went over there as soon as he got to the inn and checked in, and he bought bottled water. And he drank it. But in a short time, he began to feel really sick. And he drank some more of the water he bought, and before long, he was dehydrated. It's over 100 degrees. He's 9,000 miles away from home, and he's in a bad way. Well, his traveling partners went back to the convenience store and bought up all the water because he's really dehydrated at this point. And he, he drank all of that water. And, and as he drank the water, he just got sicker and sicker to the point he was deathly sick. Well, one of his friends uh, got a little suspicious. And so he went to the store and asked for the manager. And he asked him about that water. And the manager admitted that it was old bottles that he was just refilling with tap water. So the, the water that Dustin and his friends thought was pure and, and healing was actually filled with, with parasites. And so as Dustin drank this water to address a very real thirst he became even more dehydrated and sicker. Uh, this water was actually waging war on his health. Well, this is analogous to the natural human condition. Now, what do I mean by the natural human condition? That is the condition that we are all born into apart from saving grace in Jesus Christ. And so this is analogous to the normal and natural human condition 
where Isaiah says our natural state, Isaiah 5.13, is that we are parched with thirst. Now, now why is that we are parched with thirst? That's obviously a metaphor, a, a spiritual thirst, because in our natural state, we are separated from, as Jeremiah 2.13 describes God, the fountain of living water. Because we are separated, because we are alienated in our natural state from the fountain of living water, we are parched with, with thirst. And here is the remarkable thing, sadly remarkable. Rather than seeing God as the satisfier of that thirst, we drink from fountains that make us even thirstier, make us even sicker. And that's what Jesus is addressing as verse 37 opens up. He is speaking to people, many of them who are very religious. Remember, he's, he's speaking from a temple. We've been making our way through John, and, and we saw last time that he's speaking. He's preaching in the temple. So he's not speaking and preaching to just outright pagans. He's speaking to people who would have been at church. He, he is speaking to people who have dotted their eyes religiously. But he recognizes the, the human dilemma that we are all parched with thirst and we do not naturally look to the one who can satisfy that thirst. Notice in verse 37, just to get the context, the first part of verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day. Now, in chapter 7, verse 2, we learn that this was the feast of booths. Uh, it's variously described as the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles or the feast of ingathering. Uh, we, we, we learned a couple of weeks ago that in the law, in Deuteronomy, uh, the people of God, especially the men 20 and older, were commanded to go to three harvest festivals a year, harvest feast, uh, the, the, the feast of Passover, the feast of Pentecost, and the, the feast of booths. And, and this is the last feast of the year. It's the feast of booths, the feast of of tabernacles. And, and this feast um, had several different functions and, and, and purposes. First of all, it was a time to remember God's provision for Israel between their redemption out of Egypt and before they inherited the promised land. And in particular, how he provided water for them. He provided water, interestingly, from a rock that was struck. You think God is preparing us for something there. Uh, that, water, that, that rock would be struck and water would be provided. And, and so this was a time to remember God's provision of water. Secondly, because it was the last harvest feast of the year, uh, it was the time where they remembered and celebrated God's great provision for them through the year. All the, the crops were in the barn. But third, it was also not only to look backwards, it was to look forward to the one who would come, uh, the, the Messiah who would bring in an age uh, that is promised as we read this morning in Isaiah 12, with you 
you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so it was looking forward to a time when this Messiah would bring um, water from the wells of salvation. And so every day during this feast of booths, and they would, by the way, live in these booths. They would make these booths made of leaves to remind them of their journey and their pilgrimage. Every day during this feast, the priest marched in solemn procession from the pool of Siloam to the temple with these jars of water. And then they would pour the water out at the altar. They did that for seven days. And then after seven days, on the eighth day, which is this last day, the great day, uh, the rites, the water rites were over. And now they break down their, their, their booths and they sing the songs of Hallel, which were Psalm 113 all the way to Psalm 118. That's the context. So all the water pouring rites are behind them. And that's the context as Jesus comes to them and gives them this glorious, this compassionate invitation. We're going to see in just a moment why it was a compassionate invitation. Look with me in the second part of verse 37. In the second part of verse 37, he, sta he stands up, last day of the feast, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And again, this... This Feast of Booths, remember, remembered back when God had provided water from the rock after the rock was struck, okay? Remember, Moses struck it twice later, and God judged him for it because it ruined the type. The rock only needed to be struck one time, right? Because it was preparing us for the one who would be struck, and through his being struck would provide living water. And so... The, the water rituals were behind them, and now he is providing water. And so here he is offering what that water foreshadowed. Now, let's break this down. I love this uh, passage because you could break down every aspect of it. He says, if anyone, if anyone. Now, th this, is, this is a remarkable invitation uh, he's not excluding anyone at this point. He's saying, if anyone. Now, first and foremost, there were Jews there. There would have been Jews all over the place. They, 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 they traveled from all over Palestine to come to Jerusalem. And so there would have been Jews there who were very religious. There would have been Jews there who were not so religious. They came out of compulsion. It was just a cultural thing for them. But he is speaking to the Jews. But there were also Gentiles there. Now, why would I say that? Well, seven months later, at Pentecost, we learn in Acts chapter 2, verse 9, that in that day, at the Feast of Pentecost, were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Mesopotamians and Cappadocians and Egyptians and fill in the blank. There were people from every tribe and tongue that were there in Jerusalem. And there would have been no different here. So he's speaking to Jews, he's speaking to Gentiles. He's speaking to very religious people, and he's speaking to irreligious people. That fits every person here. And I want you to notice 
the condition. He says, if anyone thirst. That's the condition, if. Now, Jesus is not saying there's actually a class of people that don't thirst. That, that's not what he's saying. Remember elsewhere he says, I come to save the unrighteous, not the righteous. Not that there's a class of people who are actually righteous. Just like with that, people who recognize their unrighteousness, here he's speaking about people who actually recognize their thirst. There are people who don't recognize their thirst. Why? Because they have all of these masking agents that are curbing a very real issue in their life. But everyone thirsts. But he is speaking to those who recognize their thirst. A.W. Pink writes, whether he articulates it or not, the natural man, that is the person apart from saving grace, the natural man the world over is crying, I thirst. Why this consuming desire to acquire wealth? Why this craving for the honors of the world? Why this mad rush after pleasure? And the fact is, because we thirst, even if we don't recognize our thirst, we do everything to satisfy the thirst. Our, high, our lives really are controlled by seeking to satisfy that thirst. It is the priority of our existence to satisfy this thirst, a thirst that is the fruit of separation and alienation from the living water. In 1989, um, I was playing ball in college and we began our off-season conditioning program and we were told by our two strength coaches, Rich Wingo and Rocky Colburn, to meet in the Coliseum where we would run on that first day Stadium stairs. If you've ever been in Coleman Coliseum, it is steep and they go on forever. <laughs> on the first set of stairs, we were to hit every step full speed. On the second set, we were to reach out and reach for as many steps as possible. On the third set, we were to hop. They did not tell us we would run 12 sets of each. We did 36 stairs that day. Rich Wingo, our strength coach, wore number 36. And I've often wondered, is that why we did 36? I just thank the Lord we did, he didn't wear number 99. <laughs> but halfway through those stairs, and let me just tell you, we were coming off Christmas. I had not been working out. And uh, those workouts, you needed to work out for to prepare for those workouts. And halfway through the workout, I was cotton mouth, like I've never been before. I don't think I've been since. I was cotton mouth. My legs went rubber. I was faint. There was, there was just a sense of despair because they didn't tell us how many we were going to do. So it felt like this is infinity. This is going to last forever. Well, about halfway through, I, I feel that, but I start noticing at the top of the stairs, there was a cup of liquid, a Coca-Cola cup 
There had been a basketball game the night before and they had not cleaned up yet. Yeah. And I start to reason, well, you, you can't drink that cup. You don't know what's in there. In fact, there was a piece of paper in there, so it wasn't just liquid. But as we got to around 30, I get to the top and I look down to see if Coach Wingo and Coach Colburn are looking. And I pick that cup up and, and I chug it. There was all kinds of particles in that cup. <laughs> but I did not care because I had one goal. It was to satisfy an insatiable thirst. Now, had I not been thirsty, I would have thought that's insane to drink from an unknown cup an unknown liquid from that cup. In fact, the thought of that would have disgusted me. Jesus here is speaking to those who are very aware they're spiritually thirsty. And if you aren't aware that you are thirsty, and that is one of your very real problems, because you're separated from God, you will see no need for the water he offers. That's the problem in the world. And, and I said this was a compassionate invitation. Notice Jesus' compassion. He's speaking primarily to people who've rejected him. We saw last week in the passage, they want to arrest him. We also have seen that they want to kill him. And then you have others, they don't necessarily want to kill him, but they think he's insane. Listen, this guy claims to be the Messiah, but we know where he's from. We, we know his origins. We know his genealogy. He's speaking to people that care nothing for him. And I just think about that compassion because I know when I'm mistreated, the last thing I want to do is to do good for my troubler, for the one who has caused me pain and trouble. And Jesus, in his infinite compassion, is offering the greatest thing in the world to the ones who have mistreated the greatest man in the world, Jesus himself. Now notice what he says here, this invitation. I love this. Let him, let her, Come to me and drink. Now, why would he use the language of, of, of drinking? Well, drinking involves imbibing, doesn't it? it, it taking something for one's own. That which you drink gets inside of you. You, you can't stay the same once you have drank. Whatever has come inside of you has an effect and if it's wholesome it helps everything it helps everything just read the benefits the, the physical benefits of drinking H2O uh, the, the, the benefits are remarkable it, it, it actually lubricates your joints which if you're 20 you don't think about that once you get 50 
You want to drink a lot of water when you hear that. It delivers oxygen to the body. It regulates body temperature. Your digestive system depends on it. It flushes body waste. It helps maintain blood pressure. It uh, helps support and, and boost physical performance. And certainly, your kidneys are desperately in need of healthy water. You know, our bodies are made for water. The human adult is made up of 60% water. Your blood is 90% water. And Jesus is using a metaphor that everybody would understand. Uh, He's saying that just like water is vital for your body to function, I am vital for you to function spiritually. That's what he's saying. And that's why uh, understanding what Jesus says in verse 38 is so very important for us all. And that brings us to the second part of this passage. We've seen his compassionate invitation. And in the last part of this passage, second part, we see the conditional promise. There is a conditional promise here. Verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, scholars are not certain about what particular reference Jesus is referring to because he does say, as the scripture has said, Jesus had his, what he called the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevin, the Kethuvim, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, what we call the Old Testament. He, he would have been appealing to that. That's what he always appealed to. He believed in the inerrancy and the authority of the Old Testament. And, and we don't know exactly what text he's referring to. It could be Isaiah 58, 11 where the prophet promises that in the day that the suffering servant would come, you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. I love that language. Or Zechariah 14, 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, which is beautiful imagery because that's where Christ, the living water, died. Or Isaiah 12, we read that this morning. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Jeremiah 2.13, God describes himself as the fountain of living water. Jesus likely is not appealing to one verse. He's appealing to a major theme in the Old Testament. And in so doing, he offers us one of the most glorious invitations that you will ever hear or read. But note the condition. We already saw a little bit about the condition in verse 37. Come to me and drink. And then in verse 38, we see more specifically what this condition is. It is a condition. Jesus is not a universalist. Everybody's not going to heaven. The condition here is whoever believes in me. Now, the reason uh, he precedes that with the language of drinking 
is because there are people who believe you can have an intellectual belief in Jesus and be saved. No, to believe in Jesus is to drink him, to imbibe him. And when you drink anything, it changes you. So this belief is a holistic commitment to Christ coming to a king on his terms. You don't come to a king on your terms. You come to a king on his terms. You must trust him. This is what saving belief is, trusting him with everything. Trusting him with your soul. Trusting him with your eternity. And trusting him with your present life. Committing your present life to him. C.S. Lewis, in his children's book, The Silver Chair, we read these books to our children when they were younger, um, when they were preteens and they listened to us. <laughs> they help, uh, in this book, The Silver Chair, he helps us to understand um, what Jesus means here by believing and drinking the Lord Jesus Christ. So you got this character, her name is uh, Jill. And she's, she comes across a lion. Now we know this lion, his name is Aslan. She doesn't know the lion. And, and of course we know elsewhere in those books, uh, the lion is not safe. But he's good. That's the language that's used of him. He's not safe, but he's good. Well, Jill just knows he's not safe. And so Jill begins to run. And she runs and she runs into a forest. And she is parched. She is cotton mouth. She is tired and she is thirsty. And she comes to a brook. And then she sees the lion. She thought she had escaped the lion, and there's the lion. And, and here's what the lion asked Jill. Are you not thirsty? Jill says, I, I'm dying of thirst. The lion said, then drink. And Jill responded, will you promise not to do anything to me if I do? The lion says, I make no promise. I make no such promise. And then she responded, do you eat girls? <laughs> and he responded, I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. Jill said, I dare not come and drink. Then the lion said, then you will die of thirst. Oh, dear, said Jill. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. The lion said, there is no other stream. Do you understand what, what C.S. Lewis is saying in that narrative? There is no other source of satisfying water, but the condition for this water is to come on his terms. 
And that's what saving belief is. But he doesn't promise not to do anything to you. Our worldly priorities are not safe with this lion. And that's for our good. Because our worldly priorities are the living water replacements that we think can quench and satisfy our thirst. When actually, like our friend Dustin, we drink and get more dehydrated and deadly sick. But this says so much more than this water satisfies. Notice again in verse 38. Out of his heart will flow rivers of, this is flood imagery. Not only will our hearts be made full, they will overflow to those around us. That's what he's saying there. I'm from Elba. I should have got an amen, and I didn't. My Aunt Sue here is from Elba. She lives in Elba. I grew up in Elba. Elba has a distinguished history. One of those parts of our history we don't love so much is we have a history of floods. Um, There was a notorious flood in 1929. My great-grandfather told me that he rode a rowboat, rode a boat into town with that flood. He was 30 years old at the time. And we've had them. Had several in the 90s. In fact, Elba was named Bridgeville until 1851. And they decided to change the name, and this guy had just read a biography on Napoleon. And so they changed the name to Elba. Bridgeville was probably better named because Elba sits next to the Pea River, and it has a horrible levee. And that levee just has not done its job oftentimes. And, and so the river just has overflowed into the city. When Elba floods, everything gets wet. Everything in the vicinity gets wet. Jesus is promising that those who drink of him out of their hearts will overflow rivers that will wet everything around them. That's his promise. What a glorious invitation here. But here's the question we would have to ask based on this promise. Are others getting plunged by the overflow of living water that has flooded your heart? It's a very important question. And understand, the Lord has made your heart to overflow with living water. That's the way he created you. And so, nature abhors a vacuum. If your heart is not overflowing with living water, it will overflow with something. And whatever your heart overflows with, it will wet It will plunge everybody around you. So, if you are a negative person, if you're a cynical person, if you're a prickly 
person. I don't even have to define prickly. You know what it is. You've met them. If you're a slanderous person, if you're a gossiping person, if you're a discontented person, angry, bitter, jealous, if you are an ungrateful person, it's not that your heart isn't being flooded. It is. It's just that it is being flooded by a living water replacement that cannot deliver on what your heart was created for. And hence, the negative reaction. Of course you're discontented. Of course you're negative. Of course you're bitter. And here's the kicker. Everybody around you, as a result, gets wet. Everybody around you gets wet. And that's why we need to begin every day pleading to the Lord Jesus Christ to make us not only those who have drank from the fountain of living waters, but to be the vessels to flood others with this living water. That is our calling. That is our responsibility. Now, how does the blessing of Christ overflow the believer who drinks of him? And that brings us to the last verse in this passage. Notice in verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, in other words. The Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son of God. Whom those who believed in him, that is Jesus, were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so the first work Jesus would perform after he ascended to the right hand of the Father would be to send the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. 50 days after his resurrection. Penta, 50. 50 days after the Passover. So 50 days afterwards, he sends the Holy Spirit. So note, it was Sunday, the eighth day of the Passover, where the Son of God was raised from the grave. That's why we celebrate and worship on Sunday. It's the day of resurrection. On the eighth day of the feast of Passover, Jesus was raised. And it would be on Sunday, the eighth day of the Feast of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out. And here at the Feast of Booths, it's on the eighth day on Sunday when he promises the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, that does not mean that the Holy Spirit did not exist prior to this promise. Nor does it mean that the Holy Spirit was not at work. Even Old Testament saints had to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They were born again by the Spirit. Uh, we see the Spirit at work even in creation, Genesis 1. 
The spirit who anoints prophets, priests, and kings, but he would also withdraw his anointing. That's why the, David would say, take not your Holy Spirit from me. The spirit is the one who equipped Bezalel from the tribe of Judah to build the tabernacle with wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. So the spirit was at work even under the old covenant, but now he is promising something unique, something more intensive. Think of it this way. Just as the Son of God appeared on earth in these Christophanies, these pre-incarnate manifestations of Christ, just as he appeared on earth more than once in the Old Testament days, but it was only through the conception of Mary in the womb that he chose human nature to be his permanent dwelling. In the same way, the Holy Spirit was at work with all kinds of activities and works and anointings under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, but only on the day of Pentecost, upon the glorification of the Son of God, that he would make believers his home. But here's the question as we close today. How can the Spirit, who is infinitely and eternally and unchangeably holy, he has all the attributes of God, Father and Son. He's the third person of the Trinity. How can the Holy Spirit indwell unholy people? Didn't we learn in the Garden of Eden that unholy people could not abide in God's presence? Adam and Eve were cast from the garden. Don't we learn from the tabernacle and the temple that only the great high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and that once a year? So how can God dwell in unholy people? After all, our spiritual thirst is the mark, is the symptom that we are alienated from him, that we are under his divine judgment. There is a curse on our persons because of our sin. In fact, you see that theme throughout the Old Testament. Let's just give you a couple of examples. While realizing that Israel was under the Mosaic Covenant, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. We are under God's law. And we, like Israel, are lawbreakers by nature. And notice in Deuteronomy 48, you shall, or 28, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst. It's the language of hungering and thirsting. Or Hosea 2, God threatened to make his unfaithful people like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Lamentations 4, the tongue of the the judged sticks to the roof of his mouth for thirst. So, So it's clear that spiritual thirst signals We are separated from God because he is not fit to dwell with us. And we're without hope unless God provides the hope. And he has. He has provided the hope. Isaiah prophesies about a coming servant who would suffer in our place. And he would become king and and he would lead his people, get this, to become, as Isaiah 32 tells us, like streams of water in a dry place. 
When that suffering servant comes, he would extend the invitation of Isaiah 55.1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And those who do, those who recognize their thirst, and only God himself can satisfy that thirst, he promises, Isaiah 58.11, shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. So in order for God to dwell with us by the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the Son of God, has to take the curse for us. That's Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming accursed for us. And so on the cross, John 19, we'll see this Several chapters from now, Jesus knowing that atonement was being made as the curse was poured out on him, cried, I am thirsty. I thirst. I thirst. That is the symptoms of alienation, of judgment, of separation. But then having satisfied God's wrath on sin, cries, it is finished. It is finished. And now he says to you, in that great invitation, he says to you, he says to me, John 6, 35, whoever believes in him shall never thirst. You shall never thirst. Why? Because you are now reconciled to the fountain of living water. So that, as Revelation 7 says, and we close here, these glorious words, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a glorious invitation. What a glorious promise. Much has been written about Queen Elizabeth II over the last week since she died. But do you know that next Sunday, for you Elvis fans, and if you're not an Elvis fan, you should be. <laughs> On September 25th, 1962, 60 years ago, next Sunday, Queen Elizabeth II extended an invitation for Elvis to come visit her in London. I don't think Elvis declined the invitation. I think, I think the colonel did. It's another story. But so many fans of both the queen and, and, and Elvis himself have lamented the fact that that invitation was declined. It would have been a remarkable picture op. Queen Elizabeth and the king of rock and roll. And it's sad that he declined that invitation. But it's not tragic. It's not tragic. What is tragic is the decline, the invitation here of King Jesus to come to the waters and drink and never thirst again. Speaking of drinking and eating, Today, we observe the table. Thanks for worshiping with us today. 
If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.